Good morning, church. That, that was a, uh, a beautiful song, but we're going to change a little bit of a, a, our pace this morning is where uh, the reading this morning is from Genesis, and we're reading from chapter 19. We're going to read from verse 1 through to 29 as we uh, read about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 19, starting at verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they didn't go that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him, and he said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you could do what you want with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they, then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favour in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to and it's small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will grant you this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. But flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. And that is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. 
Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew these cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. And so when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tony that reading of the feel-good story of the year. <laughs> good morning, everyone. You should know me. I'm Pastor Brandon. If you don't know me, then now you do. Um, and we'll be going through the passage you just heard today. Um, not exactly the most pleasant scripture, but it is scripture. And that means God has something to teach us from it. We're following on from last week where we talked about the build-up to this. And we'll address that as well. Um, but for now, I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into God's word. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, that you've revealed yourself to us in what you've written in scripture. And, um, we ask, Lord, that you open up our hearts to what you have to say and open up what you have to say to our hearts. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the PowerPoint. This is a, um, getting a lot of feedback here. Um, this is a painting uh, by a guy called John Martin in 1852. It's his take on the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire from heaven. You can see all the way down at the bottom right corner, two small figures, possibly Lot and his wife running for high ground. Sulfuric fire pours down on the damned city while the buildings crumble inwards into a yawning chasm. It's not clear exactly what kind of event the Bible is describing when it talks about fire and sulfur raining down. Some people have suggested it's a volcanic eruption. Um, others that it's a meteor impact, in fact. But Martin's depiction is as good as any we have. And I wonder what looking at this picture did to people in 1852 and the years nearby it, um, who weren't well used to seeing cities destroyed in movie trailers from every conceivable disaster like we are, from the end of days to climate change to a fist fight between Superman and General Zod. To us, the destruction of cities is something we've come to visually expect. For the people who saw this picture, this might have been the most complete simulation of destruction on a mass scale they would ever witness. For us, the reality is a bit different as well. Every adult in this room, and I suppose every child, has lived most of their life in an age where this, this, is absolutely a possibility we are capable of inflicting on ourselves without even requiring God to get out of his chair. This is a picture from Hiroshima in Japan. Um, it's a phenomenon sometimes called a nuclear shadow. It's a side effect of the use of atomic weapons. Atomic weapons detonate before they hit the ground. Um, and the, while the blast wave is the thing that's going to demolish the buildings, it's the thermal radiation that flashes out that will bleach stone and concrete and vaporize human beings. So in an instant, a man's silhouette shields the concrete steps behind him in this picture and leaves this kind of haunting image permanently there. 
In this case, it seems like it was probably an older person based on the outline of a cane that you can see there. Probably a male being unescorted by himself there. He's just come down the steps. You can tell the cane's a little further ahead than the feet. Maybe he stops to catch his breath. Maybe he stops to watch the American plane fly away. But then the bomb explodes and the radiation flashes out and this elderly Japanese man is blasted instantaneously out of the universe, reduced immediately from a man with his own hopes and fears to a ghoulish tan line on the steps of a dead city. And all of this was done because the Allied military powers in 1945 thought this was the least horrible option available to them. By that point in the war, Germany had already been defeated. Hitler's mad dreams were dust beneath the treads of Russian tanks. Japan had been blockaded by ships um, and resources there had become increasingly scarce, including food. Their cities had been bombed with conventional weapons for months and months. Major cities were devastated. But Japan was run by its military leaders and they were possessed by a warped ideology obsessed with honorable death in battle and surrender under no condition. Better to equip every man, woman and child in Japan with sharpened sticks than to allow the home islands to be invaded. That was a scenario they were very much prepared to facilitate. As an empire, Japan was mad with pride. The Japanese decided that when the first bomb fell on Hiroshima that that was an American bluff. Americans could possibly only have one such superweapon. An act of desperation, no doubt. And then a second bomb fell on Nagasaki. At this point, the Emperor of Japan, who typically sits uh, in the background of Japanese politics as a divine figurehead, understood what his generals refused to, that he needed to surrender if he wanted to save his country in any way. And even then, he only could accomplish it by dodging kidnapping plots by his own military leaders who were trying to keep him from surrendering. It was the first time that Japan had ever been conquered by a foreign power in two and a half thousand years of its history. It left the Japanese spirit shamed and bewildered and to this day not fully recovered. And there has never been in human history a more distinct and awful showing of military power than that occasion. And it still leaves people today wondering, was this the right thing to do? Does anyone under any circumstances have a right to unleash a punishment so devastating that it amputates people's shadows? Can anyone really deserve this? And that's not an uncommon sentiment as well when it comes to Genesis 19. The events depicted within are disturbing, and if you are not disturbed by them, you were not paying attention when it was read. So we're going to be looking at this disturbing story and what might justify such destruction and what lesson we are supposed to learn from it today. But first, we have some context, some things to remember. Now, all of this in this scenario is happening as a divergence from the main story of Abraham told in the earlier and the later chapters. Abraham is the father of the Hebrews and at the time he was God's chosen servant operating in the world. At the, in the last chapter we read that uh, God had told Abraham that he was receiving some very bad reports about Sodom and Gomorrah, that the outcry against them was great. And he was going to send these two angels down to investigate to see if, if things were so bad something needed to be done. Now modern listeners understand that God is supposed to be all-knowing and he doesn't really need to send investigators in Abraham's context, though, this is a gesture of, of honesty and genuine interest in discovering the truth. 
We remember that Abraham's nephew Lot lives in Sodom. He's lived there for a little while. We remember that Abraham knows the people of Sodom because he once busted them and his nephew out of slavery when they were conquered by others. In a daring 80-year-old man commando raid, Abraham attacked a much larger force and rescued them. So he's seen many of their faces. He knows many of their names. These are not strangers to him. This is not happening to people he doesn't know. Abraham challenges God about this when God proposes it. Abraham says, will you destroy the city if there's 50 good people inside? You're a God of justice, right? That doesn't sound like justice. God says, you're right, I wouldn't do that. Abraham says, what about 30? What about 10? And eventually seems to accept what God is saying, that he is not going to destroy good people just because they're living in the town full of bad people. Then chapter 19 begins. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to them and um, to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. So Lot sees these guys come in. At this point, he thinks they're just travelers. There's no indication he knows that they're angels from God. But he's still keen to do the honorable thing and look after these traveling strangers. So the angels have come to see if Sodom is all bad, and so far it seems all right, but that, of course, does not last terribly long. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. This raises alarming questions that have been raised many times about this passage. Is God's problem with Sodom the fact that its citizens are gay? It doesn't seem like it. A thousand years after Sodom is destroyed, the prophet Ezekiel writes in the book of Ezekiel, he writes the word of the Lord thus, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and underconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. This is more a matter of pride than anything, an unwillingness to bow to God's will than anything specifically about sexuality. Second, concerning the homosexual aspect of the threat they laid down, imagine for a moment that the angels had come to the town appearing as women. All the men surround the house and they call out, where are the women that you came to you tonight? Bring us out to them so that we may have sex with them. Now, is that much better? Is it worse? Is it much the same? Might even be a little worse to me in the fact that they're traveling women and they're more vulnerable still. And a crime seems to be worse the more you're exploiting someone's vulnerability. But this is ultimately not a story so much about sexuality. It's not a story about a whole town full of gay men who are not only gay but so prodigiously gay that they cannot allow a couple of strangers to pass by without pouncing on them. And how could you have a whole town full of gay men either? They wouldn't have any kids and they'll be gone in a generation. This is about a town that is so utterly depraved that even two inoffensive men who you wouldn't even normally think were subject to this kind of attack are not safe to pass through. The people of Sodom are not gay in the way that you may have a friend or a relative who is gay. They seem much more like people in the situation that happens in a prison, a frantic expression of domination and power rather than how someone is sexually attracted. And this 
Contrast is stark between the way that Lot treats his strangers. Come into my home, eat my food, I will wash your feet, you can rest under my roof. And the way the rest of the town treats them, prepared to subject them to the most heinous violations conceivable. That's why this city is slated for destruction. In a technical sense, it's a lack of hospitality, but those words are terribly inadequate to capture the crime. Now, I work, I uh, work, well, I work, but I also walk to church most of the time now since I live so close, and I have plenty of opportunity to encounter strangers going the other way. So if I pass a 55-year-old lady with her pink sun visor taking her poodle for a walk, I look at her in the eyes, and I smile briefly, and I say hello, and then I keep going. This is a normal thing to do. But why do we do it? Smiling is typically an involuntary action you do when something makes you happy. And I am not so delighted to see another human being that I burst out into smiles. I'm pretty introverted, quite frankly. I wouldn't mind if it was a completely personless walk back and forth. I deliberately smile because for humans in the West, a smile is a kind of sign language for, I will not mug you. And this is normally taken for granted for us. But it doesn't exist in every country, and it certainly hasn't existed through all time. It's actually a very sophisticated system for conveying trust. It's important. Because if you can reasonably be assured that the people around you don't want to harm you, then you don't have to sit in a cave hiding from everyone all the time for fear of what they will do. You have freedom, you can go places, and if people catch on, then everyone benefits and the world becomes better. If people really catch on, then you can move about an area with a reasonable expectation of safety. You might even end up with a world in which someone could say that you should love your neighbor as yourself, and it wouldn't be suicide to do so. It might even lead to a gradually escalating quality of life and empathy in people where the baseline expectation is that I could climb a mountain and break my leg, and even if I don't call for help, strangers will send an army of volunteers who don't know me to find me, and flying machines full of medical professionals to heal my wounds and bring me back to the people I love. That's an amazing world to live in, but it cannot come from a foundation that is characterized by cruelty and suspicion and exploitation. A world that brutalizes its strangers. So then in verse 6, Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let, them bring, let me bring them to you, out to you, and you can do with them what you like. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. Now, this is one of the most ghastly scenes in all of Scripture. And Lot makes a, an offer to these men that is incomprehensible to us. It shows us that Lot, even if he understands hospitality, is absolutely not perfect and not an example that we should follow wholesale. If you wanted to be charitable to him, you might say that he is panicking. He is afraid that he's going to come under God's curse if he allows harm to come to these strangers in his house. And so he makes this cruel offer to try and avoid that. But the real irony of this is that Sodom and the surrounding cities are child sacrifice cultures. And by doing this, he makes himself a lot more like them than by anything else he could have done. This is no small part of the reason that God was going to destroy these cities. No small part of the reason 
that the defining moment in Abraham's life is when he is called to sacrifice his child, but then God stops him as a demonstration that this is not actually part of God's nature to sacrifice children. Abraham proves his faith, but that's not how God does things. Now, Lot shows that he's not that different from the people around him after all, ready to sacrifice his children out of superstitious terror. But the men of Sodom won't have it. They resent this outsider would interfere with them at all. He's not much better than these more recent strangers. In fact, they've tolerated him long enough and they move in to break down the door and it seems unlikely anyone in the house is getting out alive. But then the men reached inside, or men inside reached out and they pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. So the angels reveal their nature. The mob is struck blind in a miraculous action. And that appears to be the end of this part of the encounter. The rest seems to happen over the night as morning comes. It's maybe safe to imagine that the blinded and shamed attackers scatter and grope their way back to their own homes. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Ha ha, he he. Lot gets this warning. He goes out to visit his sons-in-law. Seems likely they weren't part of the initial mob that had just promised to kill him. Seems unlikely he would try and rescue those people or why he would care if they died. Um, But Lot picks his way over the crawling blind men, perhaps judiciously kicking a few on the way. But his sons-in-law can't take the warning they are given seriously. They are in their own way as blind as anyone else in that city. Too far. With the coming of the dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your daughters who are here, or you will be swept aside when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hand of his wife and of his two daughters and led them to safety out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had been brought out, one of them said to him, Flee for your lives, do not look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. So the sun begins to rise. It's time to go. Lot hesitates. He dithers. He doesn't seem to like a man who handles pressure very well at all at this point in the story. And the angels more or less drag them by the hands out of the city limits. Now, it's not just Sodom getting destroyed. We know it's Gomorrah and a number of small towns in the same area. The angels don't go door knocking there. But like we said, God really knows that this is a cultural infection of the entire region. The angelic inquiry was a gesture of good faith to Abraham, an extraction plan for Lot, and the establishment of a teaching story for generations to come. But then Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I, do not, I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. Now, Zoar means small. Literally, he's going to a town named small. 
Um, the angels have decided to be very accommodating. They will spare this small town from destruction so that Lot and his family don't have to run the whole way to the mountain. And then comes the fire. By the time Lot reached Zoah, the sun had risen over the land, and the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew these cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. This area is now called the Dead Sea Plain, and the salinity of the water in the Dead Sea and the soil around it makes it barren and lifeless except for a handful of masochistic microbes that manage to live there. We don't know much about Lot's wife. She never speaks. We don't know if they had a good relationship or a bad one. We can assume that when she looked back, she did not just turn her eyes slightly, but turned around, wanted to go back, and was caught in the destruction. We don't know exactly what the pillar of salt means. But the mountains they were fleeing to are full of rock salt, and I imagine personally that she was destroyed in a moment that left something like a Hiroshima shadow on a pillar as a grim reminder of what had taken place. Really, though, the details are scarce. She was told not to turn back, or she would be overtaken by the destruction. She turned back, and destruction overtook her, and that is the end of her story. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising up from the land, like smoke from a furnace. When God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. And the scene transitions then back to Abraham, standing where he had asked God if he was really going to do what was right. And here in the cradle of civilization, hundreds of years before the first cities will spring up in China or in the Americas and thousands of years before anything like Europe exists, people will tell the story of the cities of the plain and what happens to people who do not build cultures on a bedrock of godliness and decency to strangers. They degenerate into depraved barbarians and heaven will not tolerate them forever. That's what the ancient Middle Easterners were learning from these events. But what are we supposed to learn? Well, let's look at some of the wrong lessons that we can learn from this passage of Scripture. Let's back into this thing. What's the wrong lesson? If we really set our minds to how we could leave this place worse than the way we came in, what could we learn from this hypothetically? You could learn that God hates gay people and we, do, and we should too. The story doesn't really change one whit if everything is changed and it to be straight as a die. There are plenty of scriptures to go to when deciding the biblical view of homosexuality. But this is not one of those scriptures. We could learn that we should destroy cities of wicked people utterly. This is the idea that since God showcases his destructive judgment in this story, people seeking to be more godly should be seeking to do the same. The truth is that this passage teaches us that God can do his own judgment without our help. And while there might be a wartime justification for destruction on that same kind of scale, possibly, there's no suggestion here that God has delegated a moral authority for us to do anything like that. Our call is to be decent to the stranger, not eradicate him. We could learn that evildoers will be destroyed by angels. I'm afraid that's not entirely the case. Two of the most evil men in history, Joseph Stalin, responsible for about 25 million deaths, and Mao Zedong, responsible for about 45 million deaths, 
of the silver and gold medalists in human misery Olympics, respectively. One died of a cerebral hemorrhage at the age of 75, the other was a heart attack at the age of 83. If God was intending to throw angels at all of his problems, he's remarkably slow on the draw these days. The answer has to be more complicated than that. You could learn that good folks will be delivered from calamities. Although 70 million people were not, by and large, evil in the way that the men of Sodom and Gomorrah were. Neither was, in all likelihood, the man in Hiroshima whose name is forgotten but whose shadow is burned under those steps forever. Neither was Lot's wife, as far as we can tell. This is not a story that teaches a certainty of good outcomes in this world for good people. Missed one. messing with me. There we go. We could learn that believers should not live with unbelievers, kind of like an Amish idea of separating yourself from the corrupt world so that when God's boot eventually comes down, you're not under the heel. It doesn't hold up, though. Jesus' great commission was not go out of all the world and build yourself an isolated moral society. It was to go into the world making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So no go there. So what then is the right lesson to learn from this chapter? If this is a story about how God needed to force the world to adopt a culture of decency to strangers instead of degenerating into depraved barbarians, or at least that's its primary relevance to people of that time, what is it that humans of this time are supposed to learn from it? What is it useful to us except as a reminder that we should be kind to strangers and act godly? I'll give you two. There's the literal lesson from this. literal lesson from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is that God is the sovereign Lord and he will only tolerate evil so far. That's the literal lesson, that God will punish wickedness. And the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah adds to Scripture that promise that God will punish in that way. But that is not where Scripture stops There is more revelation that comes with this and adds more light to what this story means. It doesn't stop there. Over the next thousands of years, God reveals more of his word in the Bible. It's not just that God will punish the wicked, but that God is going to make a special people for himself who will be a beacon to all the lost people, like a lighthouse for ships in the darkness of human nature so that they can come to him and not become the kind of people that require destruction. And it's not just that there will be this special people, but that this special people needs a special connection to God so that God can forgive their crimes and repair their faults. He's going to restore the relationship between God and man so that man can be more godly again. And then not only that, but we need someone who is righteous enough to establish that relationship. You need someone who is not lost at sea to operate the lighthouse. And then not only that, but the truth is that we are all lost at sea and we all know it because we all live inside our own heads. You know the petty and cruel thoughts you have sometimes. You know how often you promise to do something and then fail and make excuses for yourself. You know how you judge everyone else by their actions, but yourself by your intentions. And you know that if heaven is a perfect place, you would ruin its perfection by being there like a stain on a wedding dress. Still perfect if you don't look close. So God sends Jesus. Jesus pays humanity's debt by dying on the cross. He's the sacrifice that God provides to make that forgiveness possible. And not only that, 
But there is a life and a judgment after death. And the Stalins and the Maos will not have their evil overlooked just because they lived long lives. Because there's fire and sulfur waiting for them on the other side. And Lot's wife and the innocent ones, like the old man in Hiroshima, did not pay the ultimate price just because they were caught in a destruction called down by someone else's action. There's a judgment at which they will be held to account for their own sins and a life that lasts forever available to anyone who is willing to give up their pride and ask for forgiveness and permit God to make them worthy. But he will not force you. He'll tolerate evil, but only so far. That's the literal lesson to learn from Sodom and Gomorrah. And here's the symbolic lesson. Whenever something is purified, something has to burn. And if you're going to be purified, part of you has to burn. Why sulfur? Most of us only think of sulfur in the context of punishment from God. Lake of fire and sulfur, raining, burning sulfur. If you took chemistry, you know that sulfuric acid is highly corrosive and the whole thing sounds unpleasant and painful altogether. Poets like John Milton and Dante Alighieri, who wrote Paradise Lost and Dante's Inferno, um, they gave previous generations of Christians hundreds of years ago these enduring grand visions of hell with fire and sulfur, either as evil scenery seen from Satan's office window or an instrument of special hellish suffering and torture. Sulfur as evil and fire as evil. And the whole thing is designed to be painful and as unpleasant as possible. But oil of sulfur is a preservative. It's an embalming fluid. It prevents the corruption of flesh. It's a purifying agent, like fire is. And symbolically, it's a tool of God, not Satan. The reason that fire and sulfur is poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah is because the whole area was being purified. And I've always thought of myself, as a bit of a side divergence, but it's an illustrative story. I've always thought of myself as a clever guy. I was told that I was bright growing up, and I enjoyed that. I got my fair share of gold stars and smiley stickers in primary school. And so as I went through my teenage years, I got very good at lying. Because sometimes there would be things I didn't know. And if people found that out, that would mean confronting that maybe I am not as smart as I preferred them to think I am. And this is how pride begins, at least for people like me. You start out smart and you enjoy that. Being smart is the most sought-after attribute in children in, our, in the last two centuries, and you learn that pretty quick. That's nice. Then you get good at lying so that you can convince people that you are smarter than you are. Then you get stubborn because you learn that half of the time, if you just dig your heels in and act like you're very sure, people will back down and assume you're right. Then you get dismissive. You won't believe how smart you can feel if you can just choose who to listen to and dismiss the others as stupid. It's amazing. It's a drug. But what God does when you decide to let Jesus be the Lord of your life instead of your ego is he gets about purifying you. And so for me, I learned that he was saying, actually, all of this has to go. All of this dismissiveness has to burn. All the stubbornness beneath that and then the lying. And we're going to scrape out this pride in cleverness and for the rest of your life, you're going to have to keep an eye on that spot because it will grow back. And there's a weed in the soul, and every time it does, you have to burn it again. 
And when you first really decide to turn from sin and live the way God wants, your personality might be built out of 90% of things that have to go. That is a heck of a purification, man. But that's why Jesus is called the cornerstone. Because you have to strip the foundation of who you are back to the ground level and start from his example so that you and the global church can be built starting at his example. That's why Jesus says, unless you become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Because so much of who we are can be built on stupid, prideful things that need to be burned away so that we can be the person we were meant to be and that person can thrive and grow. So when you get up in the morning and you look at yourself in the mirror in that honest moment before you gather the face you are going to present to the world, what do you see? And what is there in that person staring back at you that needs to go if you're going to be better than this? What is the pride or the shame or the fear or the weakness that you know is standing between you and the person God made you to be? It might be a little thing you've been avoiding for your whole life. It might be just about everything about you that is a mess of weeds choking the rose that is desperate to see the sun for the first time. Whatever it is, you can start today. Leave it behind. Don't look back. Let it burn. And tomorrow, when you've come through the fire, you will wake up more like the person you were made to be than you ever have before. So let's pray.